once you start landing accounts, now you have new processes that you need. How do I issue a purchase order? How do I onboard a new supplier? Uh, we were doing our own prep initially. So how do we receive goods and how do we reconcile and how do we prep? Do you feel you're wasting money you could be keeping in your pocket? Well, many private label Amazon sellers don't even know where they're wasting money, let alone how to stop it. And if that's you, we can help. Our new online assessment helps you identify your biggest Amazon profit killer and what to do about it. For a powerful and quick diagnosis, go to amazonprofitquiz.com. That's amazonprofitquiz.com to get your instant free analysis straight away. I hereby introduce to you, Mr. Michael Veazey. Hey, 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 welcome to Amazing FBA, the place to be for UK-based Amazon entrepreneurs. I'm your host, Michael Veazey. Welcome to the show. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome back to the Amazing FBA podcast. I'm here with a really great guest for me today because I'm obsessing with process right now because I want to make more money in less time and with more consistency. I don't know about you, but that's my aim. So Trent Dismit is with us today. He's the owner of a seven-figure Amazon wholesale business, the host of the Bright Ideas podcast, and the founder of Flowster, which is a great workflow or SOP solution used by thousands of Amazon sellers. So a massive underachiever, obviously. Welcome, welcome to the show, Trent. Michael, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for coming on. Um, so you're obviously one of those genuinely serial entrepreneurs. I know you've been doing a lot of stuff for, for many years in a variety of places, but even those things I've just mentioned is obviously huge achievements. I mean, tell us a bit about your story. How did you get to this point? Well, I grew up, you know, probably like any other kid, just two regular working parents. I didn't go to college. Instead, I chose working in sales um, and my very first job. I had success relatively quickly and it taught me how to communicate with other people and how to make cold calls and prospect and open doors. And that was a hugely valuable portion of my uh, early career. And I started my first business. So I pretty much worked in sales my entire career until I decided I wanted to work for myself. And that was back way back in 2001 when I started my very first business, which I ran for eight years. It was twice ranked as one of Canada's profit 100 fastest growing companies. And then I sold it for over seven figures. And that for me growing up, I actually grew up, my parents were on welfare at one, one point in time, or at least that's what we call it in Canada when the government's giving you money because you can't make enough on your own. And so that was a big life changer for me to get to finally not be poor anymore was, was profound to say the least. And then after selling that business, I, of course, I took a little bit of time off. And then I found my way onto the internet, all kind of just by accident. And I discovered that people were making money from behind a computer screen, doing all sorts of things. And I became fascinated with that. And so I started doing all sorts of these things. I was building micro. My very first thing was I was an Amazon associate and I built this network of 30 or 40 different micro niche sites that were all basically providing reviews for digital cameras. And it started, I started getting commissions from Amazon for selling digital cameras and it just, life just kind of took off. I mean, there's a lot more detail obviously, but that is how I got started on the world of making money online. And that was all about 10 years ago. And 
my podcast, which I've been doing for about 10 years, has led me into all sorts of amazing opportunities. And I guess the one most relevant to this conversation in your audience is back in 2016, I had interviewed a guy on my show by the name of Dan Metters. And I was struggling four months before that. I had started trying to do private label on Amazon and I was not having a great deal of success. And that's when wholesale came along and literally changed my life. That poster, the, the, picture, the print you see behind me is the Inc. 5000 Award. We ranked number 254 on the Inc. 5000 in 2019, largely because of how quickly our Amazon wholesale business has grown. Uh, that's <laughs> a huge and impressive list of business successes. And I like the fact that I think that the business background being deeper is good because it puts the Amazon thing into perspective. A lot of people have their first business experience with Amazon. And I'm kind of like that. I mean, I've, my first successful business experiences have been on Amazon. But I do think it means you can put the business um, model into context and above all that a lot of things in the end are business business is business right and a lot of people get to amazon specific and one of the reasons i wanted you on the show is because i actually came across the the flowster app that you've created or flowster system because i was digging around on the internet looking for process driven applications because i'm just realizing more and more that i have to stop manually doing things or being inconsistent and uh, you know i've theoretically got the idea of process and SOPs years ago, but I'm actually trying to really sweat to, to make it consistent now. Hence why I came across you and down to somebody else that I've interviewed as well for podcast. So I think I'd like to, to dive a little bit into the, the difference between private label and wholesale, but we'll be doing that in the next episode. I think I know a lot of people find that quite tricky, but let's look at the success first, the wholesale thing. So tell me about your wholesale experiences. You said you grew to be 254 on the Inc. 5000 list. So that's quite a success from 2016. So what took you there? So it started with a decision. When I interviewed Dan, I was almost ready to give up on my Amazon private label business. I had two different products. I'd spent all sorts of money on pay-per-click and doing product launches and promotions. And while we were making revenue, we had no profit. And I was kind of like, I was over it. And then I met Dan and, and didn't even know the wholesale thing existed. And so I, when I finished the interview with him, I turned to my wife and I go, we're going to do that start right now. And within five months, we were doing over $100,000 a month. So how did that happen is a question I get asked a lot, as you might imagine. And the very first thing had nothing to do with any systems or any technology or any tools or any training course or anything. It came with a decision that was firm. This is what we're going to do. And I, I knew from being a consumer on Amazon and, and like 10 minutes worth of research that the biggest, most of the biggest sellers on Amazon use the wholesale model. Companies like NetRush and Etails and Blue Colony Trading. And I mean, these companies are doing tens, hundreds of millions a year in revenue by reselling products they don't make. And so that was all the proof that I needed that the model was very, very scalable. And so I took my entrepreneurial experience and applied it to this new problem. And the problem was, how do I grow sales on Amazon? And I realized very, very quickly that if you want to grow sales in wholesale, the way you do that is to form more relationships with more suppliers so you can get access to more sub strong selling products so you can put them in your product portfolio. It's not exactly rocket science. So, okay, that's great. I need as many relationships as I can, or I need access to as many products as I can. How do I do that? Well, if I want to have relationships with brands, that means I need to talk to brands. 
okay, well, how do I do that? Well, I need to send emails, lots of emails. So what I did differently than I think most everybody who gets into this is I didn't ever think, well, I'm going to sit down and be the one doing the product research and finding lists of competitive sellers and doing the product extractions and getting the contact information and then sending all the emails. Like that's, that's the process because I realized that would be a highly ineffective use of my time because I've been working with virtual assistants in the Philippines by this point in my podcast business and my other business for, you know, like seven years. So I was well, well, well comfortable working with virtual assistants. So I figured out what we needed to do. Then I wrote processes. So the first step was finding competitors and extracting. Okay, well, that's a process. So I wrote a document that described in extremely high level of detail exactly how that was done. And then I hired a virtual assistant, one person full-time to do just that. Nice. And then that one person became two people, became three people, and I think maybe even four people within our first five months. I had this little mini army of virtual assistants following all these processes that I had written so that all I had to do was focus on the thing that I could not delegate to a virtual assistant, and that was replying to all the replies that I received from this large volume of emails that we were sending every single week to prospective suppliers and taking those conversations and converting them into an online meeting and then a productive discussion and then a purchase order and then an agreement with that brand to become one of their exclusive sellers. That is the highest and most valuable use of my time. So that's what I was doing six, seven, eight hours a day, every single day, because I delegated all the preparatory work to make that happen to my virtual assistants because I had processes. So that's simple to explain, but it's a huge distinction because while most people who start off in wholesale, they're maybe struggling to send emails to 10 or 20 or maybe 30 prospective suppliers a week, I was sending emails every single week to hundreds and hundreds of suppliers. So over five months, you know, I've now contacted, I don't forget what the number is, but we'll call it tens of thousands of prospective suppliers versus somebody else might've maybe got to like 300. So the odds are wildly stacked in my favor that I'm going to be more successful because I'm just taking more swings at the bat by sending so many more emails to so many more suppliers. Nice. I have to say it does make sense. And I know that the, it's not the Achilles heel, but the known sort of uh, weak point in the system of, of wholesaling or the, the place where, in other words, you need to push through with either a combination of some determination and focus and not giving up and being smart about it is that thing of you're not going to close most people. And even if, and if you're, you know, used to a different world, like private label, whatever, and we can discuss the wholesale world a bit more, because I think it's a model pretty much all private label sellers should know about, actually, in my opinion, these days. And this has been a bit of a revelation to me as well, like you, because of a podcast and talking to Dan Meadows, the same person. But anyway, you've got to learn about this thing. But what might be a surprise to you is that you've got to kind of sell the suppliers into having you as a reseller because most of them don't necessarily want you. And therefore, it's a percentage game. And you've got to allow for the fact that if you're doing well, maybe what did you find a percentage? Well, about 4% of the people that you would approach would go ahead 1%. What was your sort of rough? Oh, not even that high. So really, I know what the numbers are because yeah. we've tracked them since day one. 
So we have what we call our email to booked call ratio, which is what percentage of the people that we send an email to end up booking a call with us. And when I looked last week, it was 1.18%. And that's, that's the cumulative number over our three and a half, nearly four years of doing this because we've been tracking that forever. One point, so just call it a, a 1%. So that means I send 100 emails, I get one phone call. That doesn't mean I want an account. That just means I got And when I say phone call, I mean online meeting. I don't do phone calls. Online meeting is the way to go. You want to be able to see the person you're talking to. Then, but that's the hardest part. If you can get them to agree to speak with you, your odds of winning the account are actually quite high because invariably what you will find is they probably have listings that are not very well optimized. They probably have negative product reviews that are not being responded to. They may or may not have any ad campaigns running. When if there's none running, that means none of their current sellers are bothering to run any ad campaigns. And most importantly of all of that, They probably have too many sellers, which is why they didn't want to talk to you in the first place. They don't know who they are and they don't know how to get rid of them. If you come onto that call and you say, I know how to fix all that stuff and I'm not going to charge you any money to do any of it. I'll make my money by reselling your product. Your odds of success are very high. Like if you're a reasonably good, if you've had some experience in sales and you know how to strike, if you know how to follow a sales call process, because there's a process to doing sales call, I would say you, you can close one in four. One and four, one and five, something like that. Great. So now in the be- in, in the beginning, yeah, I didn't I didn't close that well because I yeah. don't know what to do. Yeah, of course. Yeah, it's like anything else. But what what's interesting is essentially there's there's um a saying I don't know if it's a really well known saying in internet marketing that really traffic just buys you a lot of opportunities to not be that great but to still make a success overall. So in other words, in in this sort of it's that outbound sales rather than inbound marketing type thing, which is beloved of everyone in the internet. And me, I'm also guilty of this. I try and get inbound sales is the answer to everything. In other words, SEO, um, Facebook ads, whatever it may be. Whereas actually, you know, emailing somebody proactively is great, but whichever way you do it, you've got to have a, a, a raw set of raw material flowing through the pipes, right, in order to give you a chance. And I was just reflecting that if you're getting one in uh, 100, so we say, so 1% of people that go from email to booked call, if you're sending 30 emails a week, you're maybe going to book a call once every three, four weeks. And if you're closing one in four, you might, if you're lucky, close a new account in in the first month. And if you're actually not going to close it one in four, it's going to be probably two or three months. So that I can imagine that. I'm just imagining how most people do this and end up going, yeah, this business model doesn't work and give up because I've come across yep. that a lot with a lot of things. I'm just reverse engineering disaster and then reverse engineering what you did and, and examining the difference. So I guess you'd end up with an account within the first two, three weeks, even if you weren't good at closing, right? Whereas those guys might never do it. I was getting accounts every week. And some weeks I'd get multiple accounts because my calendar was full. I mean, I would come into the office and I would have three rescheduled meetings with brands. Mm-hmm. To, so we call them discovery mm-hmm. calls on a typical day three. Mm-hmm. And I would have probably 30 to 40 emails in my inbox to reply yeah. to from other brands that I was hoping to talk into taking a call with me. Yeah. So I had endless, endless opportunities and as you might imagine, even though in week one where I hadn't really got my pitch figured out, although I should say I did go to a trade show before I did any of this. And I did, I talked to 30 brands at a trade show over three days. So I kind of knew what I was doing just based upon that three days worth of experience. We can dive into that in a minute if you want to. But because I was talking to brands so often, my pitch got really good, really quick. That's the point I wanted to make. 
and most people, as you described, and I, and this is the like 99% because I've talked to so many Amazon sellers over the years. They're, they are making the list of competitors. They're doing the product extractions. They're, you got to find all the contact information. You got to go on LinkedIn. They're putting in 15 hours a week just to be able to send 20 emails, which is ridiculous horrendous. when you can have other people do that work for you. Absolutely. I, I have to say that I definitely uh, am a fan of using VAs. I mean, I, with the podcast, I guess like yourself, because if you're going to produce, I know you've produced several hundred episodes in over 10 years. I mean, I've done several hundred over, what, four years. And eventually the, the sheer time demand and focus, you know, forces you to outsource and give up really. So I, I think, yeah, that the fact that you'd had that background and the fact that you had the, the sales background, obviously made you like the perfect it was the perfect storm like no wonder you looked at this and thought this is the perfect opportunity for me because i can see how that matches your skill set so we're gonna have to talk about how people can can do it for themselves who are perhaps less impressive in their background but first of all tell me about preparing for the calls with the trade show because you just slipped that one in there and we ought to dig into that how did did you think of that first when, when did that even occur to you to do that i don't remember exactly how I probably talked to somebody because I, I find I am the originator of very few original ideas. I'm a great <laughs> copycat and, and improver. Yeah. Take somebody else's idea and make it better. So mm -hmm. I probably talked to somebody. And this coincidentally, so I went to this show called Super Zoo, which is one of the biggest pet trade shows in the US. So it's just the pet industry. And I didn't even like, actually, I got one account at the show. But what it was really, really useful for was in a condensed period of time, because when you walk up to a human being, at a trade show, it's unlikely they're just going to turn their back on you and say, go away. Like they'll take a few more words. If they don't want to talk to you, eventually they'll say, go away. But most people aren't that rude. So I had the opportunity to figure out firsthand, what questions do I need to ask? And what do these people really care about? And what are they hearing from other people? And so I would just walk up and be friendly. You know, you don't need a training course to be friendly. Hey, you guys have a fantastic booth. How's the show going for you? I wouldn't say anything about me. Just get some ice-breaking, rapport-building conversation. And once you've got rapport, eventually they're going to say, "So, what's your what's your deal? What do you do? You know, do you have a store? Do you have this?" Because they're expecting that you're probably a retailer. And you can say, "Yeah, actually, I'm an online retailer, and I work with companies doing this." You should have your little elevator pitch that you've practiced beforehand. It should take you less than thirty seconds to say. And I said, you know, I I put my team put you on my short list of companies of all the people. I don't want to talk to everybody that's here, but you're one of the ones I do want to talk to. So I'm a little bit flattery right there. And that's true because I did have my VA team use uh, Jungle Scout or Viral Launch to figure out of everyone that was attending that trade show, they made me a short list of the people who had brands that were doing well. So I wasn't like blindly wandering the aisles. I had my map figured out. I knew I was going to this booth and then I was going to that booth and then I was going to that booth. So when I say I talked to 35 brands over three days or 38 or 33, whatever the hell the number was, they were all brands who were already having success on Amazon. So very quickly, I got it figured out that their number one issue, the thing they cared about most was identifying, removing, and removing unauthorized sellers that are causing map violations. So then I just started skewing my conversation, my elevator pitch to that. And where that really served me was once I got back to my office and we started sending all these cold emails, I knew what to put on my homepage and I knew what to put in my emails and I knew what to talk about and I knew what questions to ask. 
and the common the culmination of all of that was obviously critical to my success wow this is really textbook stuff and you really did your homework on this i have to say that often people come across you know extreme success or swift success like you've had you know getting to hundred thousand a month within you know five months with a brand new business model but in the end, it's not surprising that you had success because you've done so many intelligent things. One of the things I think is remarkably rare in online-based businesses, perhaps understandably, is that people don't go and talk to normal people offline. And I think with the private label business, which, as you said, we'll talk about in the next show, but is a much more complicated business model in many ways, it's even more insane that people don't go and talk to end consumers. And I spend my life just begging any clients that I'm working on creating private or, or custom products I would just beg them to go and talk to end users. It's even better if you're an end user yourself, but so uh, basic and yet people just don't tend to do it. So absolutely hats off for that. And fascinating that, that things came out so clearly to basically one point. And that's often the result, isn't it? That you go and talk to, you know, 30 people, whatever it is, and you'll end up with one single sentence out of it that is the critical one. But knowing that is, I guess, the prize, right? That's, that's what you got out of it. I mean, what else would you say you got out of your, your conversations with your well, that's the thing. That's the thing about as you're talking about private label. I'm thinking of the Canton Fair, which, and I, and I should back up. I actually went to China back in 2004. One oh, of the wow. things I skipped in my bio. I actually my very first online business. I used to sell jewelry on eBay <laughs> as a part time gig while I was running my my technology services company because I just stumbled into that. But I think. So, something that that new entrepreneurs fail to grasp the importance of is what happens at trade shows that you can't predict or plan for. So in the case of, say, private label, the common methodology is you sit down and you do product research and you use Jungle Scout and you use these tools and you're using the same tools that everybody else is using. You're applying the same filters that everybody else is applying and you're looking at the same results that everybody else is looking at. When you go to a trade show, maybe you're randomly wandering the aisle and you come across this product and it's like, you think it's just like the coolest thing ever. For whatever reason, it resonates with you, but it didn't show up on Jungle Scout. It didn't show up on Viral Launch or anything. And then you talk to the people that make it and you figure it out and you learn some stuff. And maybe that's not the product, but maybe that gives you an idea for a product. And then you go somewhere else in the trade show and you find somebody else that makes a thing that looks, looks more like the thing. And None of that happens if you don't go to the trade show because you need conversations with people to help you to get ideas in your head, which you can then iterate on. But if you didn't have the conversation, the seed idea never got in your skull. There's an expression. I have a video on YouTube that ranked number one for years for how to start a business. It has millions of views. And it's all about this thing. I explain this green dot theory, which I'll take like 60 seconds and explain what it is. So you don't have to watch a 10 minute video. But basically when you're starting off in business, you decide I'm going to sell green dots. Obviously green dots is a metaphor for whatever your product is. So you go out there and you're trying to sell green dots, but you're not selling very many of them. And as you're trying to get better and better at selling green dots, you actually discover that there's blue dots and blue dots are a little easier to sell. They sell a little better. So you start selling blue dots now. Now, green dots, thing in the past, not doing that anymore. Now I'm focused on blue dots and I'm actually doing okay. I'm kind of like breaking even getting by, but I'm always trying to get better at selling my blue dots. And eventually I figure out that there's these things called black triangles and everybody wants to buy black triangles. So I pivot my business again. I'm now selling black triangles. I got an Inc. 5000 award. I'm crushing it. 
what's the moral of the story? If you never decided to try and sell green dots, you would have never, ever, ever, ever discovered that there was a market for black triangles. And this is the thing that new entrepreneurs don't understand. They sit back and they're like, I am not going to start until I discover black triangles. Guess what? You will never be successful and you will never start. Trade shows help you to discover green dots and maybe some blue dots, maybe even a black triangle. But if you don't go to a trade show, none of that happens. Amazing. It sounds like you're the uh, poster boy really for the, the iteration principle, which is like get started and then you'll find stuff on the way. And I guess the other thing you're saying is trade shows are amazing. Unfortunately, at a time of recording in late May 2020, that they're all cancelled. But, uh, you know, you can do the same online to a certain degree. But I would also say any form of conversation, just to broaden your point, any form of conversation with relevant players, which is to say either a supplier or, God forbid, an end consumer is going to help you think things through. I remember forcing some guy once in a, a group that I no longer run because it's for startups that, that hadn't started, as it were, pre-revenue startups. Which, which, as you say, most people never get to the point of revenue. And I remember this guy said, I want to sell baby stuff. You know, it was a baby changing mat that, that folded into a backpack or whatever. I said, great, there is a mother opposite you here. Go and talk to her. So we all sat there and he just uh, talked to her about baby stuff. And it was very interesting. He didn't have kids. She did. He had a two and a half year old. So it was instantly a few very important things emerged about what the product needed to do, which would you know, probably never have occurred to him by just reading Amazon reviews. So good old conversation <laughs> i do have a hack i do have a hack for you that people can use in the absence Please. of trade shows yes you can contact brands and say i am an analyst i'm working on a research report that i plan to publish in the next couple of months uh that's going to cover blah 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 i would love to talk to you to get your insights to weave it into my research people will take your call They'll give you the time. Whether you produce the report or not at the end is irrelevant because by then they'll have forgotten. They'll have forgotten who you are. It doesn't really matter. Is it a little bit gray area deceptive? Yeah, you're stealing an hour of their time that you, if you don't produce the report, they're never going to get a return on. But there are worse offenses in the world than stealing an hour of somebody's time. This is true. But also, I think, why not produce the report? I, I think that's a great reason to go back to somebody with an email, a legitimate reason to go back to somebody with stuff that they've been involved Absolutely. in. I think that's just great. I think it's super smart marketing. I, I would definitely see it as a criminal offense, not wasting the eyes of their time so much, but as a marketing sin to have a, a person who's been willing to talk to you for an hour and then not to follow up. That would be insane. So yeah, brilliant. That's a great, great hack. I'm going to take that one. <laughs> My VAs are going to be busy. All right. So let, let's come to the, your, the tools you've used, because I know we want to talk about um, private label versus uh, wholesale, but I'm going to hold that discussion off for a whole different topic, because I think it is a, a big thing. So tools, tell me about this. Obviously, we, we've talked about you know lots of smart things you did but one of the things you did was to set up uh, flows that got you a ton more prospective clients than most people do which is why you succeeded because you got to practice more than everyone else which means you get better at the calls and everything else flows well so tell me about the tools that the process set up side and the, the big picture of that well when we initially started i just wrote instructions in google docs and i very quickly came to realize that that wasn't necessarily the best approach. And I know a lot of folks, they like to create. So, so the tools, and by tools, Michael, I'm assuming that you mean you want me to talk about the processes that I created as opposed to third-party pieces of software that I've used. Yes, exactly. Yes, I, I, it wasn't a good question, but you're, you're exactly right. You've improved the question. <laughs> Tell me about the processes, not the tools. So the processes, for every task that you want, that you're going to need somebody to do over and over, and over and over and over. 
ideally, you have a, a process or a recipe or a description. We call it a, a standard operating procedures. The term we use are SOP. And all that is, is essentially a fancy checklist. Do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. And in those checklists, we have a very high level of detail that describes specifically how to do this and how to do this in step three and step four and step five. So I created those docs and initially they just lived in a software application. Well, initially they lived in Google docs, but I came to realize that wasn't very effective for a variety of reasons. The most important ones were that it didn't give me a way to easily assign a task to a specific individual on my team with a deadline. I had to incorporate another app if I was going to put my processes in just a Google Doc because Google is not a task management tool at all. So then we used another piece of software for the first, oh, I don't know, maybe a year or so. And so this software allowed us to create processes and allowed us to assign it to an individual and then give each assignment a due date so that if a due date was missed, we were alerted to that fact. So every process, right from, so initially, obviously we're very focused on sourcing product in the wholesale world that starts with some aspect of product research. Then once you've got your short list of leads, as it were, then you've got to get the contact information for the companies and then you actually have to contact the companies. So there's a bunch of processes for that product extractions, competitor analysis, finding the contact information, going on LinkedIn, et cetera, so that you could send an email at the door. So we had processes for all that. Then, of course, once you start landing accounts, now you have new processes that you need. How do I issue a purchase order? How do I onboard a new supplier? We were doing our own prep initially. So how do we receive goods and how do we reconcile and how do we prep and then how do we create an inbound shipping order to Amazon? And then if we were doing listing optimizations, we needed to process for that. If we needed to do ad campaigns, we needed to process for that. Amazon account health, we needed to process for that. Dealing with returns, we needed to process for that. Amazon, I mean, selling on Amazon is really just the same stuff over and over and over and over again. So we ended up creating processes for absolutely everything. And we're now at the point in the story where, like, if you want me to, I can talk about, you know, how I I got invited by Dan to speak at one of his events and how Webs was created, or I, I don't know what road you'd want to go down now. Thanks for listening to the 10K Collective podcast for six and seven figure Amazon sellers. I really hope you found the show helpful to you. Please don't forget to subscribe to the show. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, please do leave us a quick star rating. It will take you all of 30 seconds to do it, but it does mean we can be found by and help many more e-commerce business builders. I wish you fast and profitable scaling, and I hope you enjoy the process of building your seven-figure Amazon business. Thanks very much for listening.